way to our seats as we prepare to gather together. All right, good morning, Gateway. Good morning. It's great to see everybody. So glad you're here this morning to worship with us. We want to welcome all those watching us online as well. It's great to be able to come together to worship, to spend some time together in community as family, and to be discipled and encouraged. And so we're just glad you're all here. Um, just want to have a couple of announcements, actually three, um, before I ask Seth Rodebeck. There he is. I <laughs> just want to make sure where he is with his joke. Good. Uh, first thing is just a reminder, Grady mentioned some of these announcements last week. Uh, but the Young Adult Life Group um, is starting their new Bible study this Thursday night in the gym building at 6.30. It's a new David Platt study called Something Needs to Change. Um, it looks at the world's physical and spiritual needs and how God wants us to use use us in the midst of those situations all over the world. So a new David Platt study. Young Adult Life Group, I was talking to Zach who, and them who lead it. Kind of post-college age, 25 to 35. So if you want to be a part of that, please come. Like I said, this Thursday night, 6.30 in the gym building. Another reminder from last week, uh, Mike shared a little bit about this. The men's overnight backpacking trip is uh, October 16th and 17th, a Saturday and Sunday, Pine Mountain, Georgia. Details and registration are our news section of our website at gatewaybaptist.com. The sign-up deadline is next Sunday. Next Sunday is the sign-up deadline. So I just want to encourage you men, if you want to participate, to uh, register this week. And uh, my last announcement before I call Seth up, very excited. Um, we're having our fourth annual River Region Worship Gathering called Awaken. How many of you all have been and participated in this over the past three years? Hands, okay, that's good, a few of you. I really want to encourage you guys to be a part of this. Um, this is our fourth year. Last year, we, because due to COVID, we had to do it uh, in a building, live stream it virtually. Um, but it's an amazing time for the body of Christ. How many churches are in the River Region? Everybody say it together. How many churches are in the River Region? One. There's one body, one church. And this is an opportunity for many congregations and many fellowships all over to come together as the one church, to worship the Lord, to declare his word, to come together, to have communion, just to acknowledge his presence and his lordship over our community, over the region, over our city. And so this is going to take place Sunday, November 7th. We've done it in the spring the past few years, but uh, the team that leads this in the city felt like it'd be a good year to do it in the fall where it's a little cooler. And uh, Riverwalk Stadium, the Biscuits, were gracious enough again to let us use their venue. It's been a wonderful time to come together. You get to see the extended family and those you may know at other churches, um, congregations, in a sense, you know what I'm talking about. So, but literally, please consider uh, putting this on your calendar. We're very excited to do it again. It will be at the Biscuit Stadium downtown, Sunday, November 7th at 6 p.m. Obviously, it's free. We just come together to worship the Lord. Bring your unsaved friends. I mean, just, it's really wonderful to say, if you want to know what Christianity is about, if you want to know what this Jesus can do, what he's about, who he is, come to this event, look around that stadium, every ethnicity, every color, every background, and say, this is what heaven's going to be like. And you can bring an unsaved friend to experience this and say, this is what Jesus does, bringing people together. So I'd love for you guys to be a part of that. Seth, if you can come up and share, and then we'll read some scripture together. Thanks, CJ. Yeah, real quick, um, uh, you guys have heard a lot about our ministry over at Capitol Heights and the Capitol Heights community. And through that ministry, we've met a lot of people who are in poverty. And we've walked alongside them. We've gotten some pretty good relationships with a couple families over the last year or more. And so we're just in a place now where we're really starting to think through 
How do we really help these people? How do we really walk alongside them? How do we introduce them to the person of Jesus Christ and not just be another social organization that's meeting the needs of the poor? And so what I want to do is invite any of you who may be interested um, to come and, and just to meet with me. I don't have any great plans or big ideas. What I want to do is just get together with a group of, of you to think about, to pray about, to talk about how we can best serve the poor in Montgomery. I was shocked to look at some of the stats. 22% of the residents of Montgomery, Alabama, are at, live at or below the poverty line. That's pretty astonishing. And so as we look around our lives, what are we doing to address the poor? What are we doing to go and to lay our lives down to encourage, to, to walk with the poor, to serve them? It's, it's a wonderful thing that we see all throughout Scripture. The poor are very close to the heart of God. That's one of the things in James that talks about pure and undefiled religion is to meet the, the widow and the orphan in their affliction and to visit them in that. And so I just want us to get together and think about that. I don't have a date right now. You're going to get an email soon that's going to go out. We're going to announce this again next week. But in the meantime, if you are interested at all, if you have worked with the poor in the past, if you have received help from a ministry or organization in the past, if you're just interested, I would love for you to come and be a part of this, to pray together, to talk about how can we develop a plan and a ministry here at Gateway that really comes alongside the poor and, and introduces them to the person of Christ. So find me after service today. We'll send an email out soon. We'll make an announcement again next week. Um, I'll, I'll have my, my cell phone and my email address in there if you want to reach me that way. But just come talk to me and let's, uh, let's think about as the church, how can we step into this wonderful ministry that we've been given here in Montgomery. So thank you. Thank you, Seth. Will you please stand? Us together in unity. This morning, what we're going to do is declare the word together. That's a powerful thing to do. I love when we do this sometimes. So our uh, scripture that we're going to use to launch us this morning in worship will be on the screen. So let's declare this together in unity. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that by being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen? Let's worship our Savior together. So 
we praise you so much. What a declaration. Glory to you, Lord, that we shout the hymn of heaven. God, we thank you for your justification that you saved us, as we declared earlier from Titus, our Savior that came to pay the price on our behalf, to die in our place, to bear the wrath of God, the Father, so that we may be restored and renewed and reconciled to you. God, we praise you for that. We thank you for your justification. God, we thank you for your sanctification that you, as we just declared, you making us holy to be holy like you, to be conformed to the image of your son. We thank you, God, that daily we can be sanctified by the power of your Holy Spirit. And as what we just declared, we've been justified and we're being sanctified, but praise God, one day, God, we're going to experience glorification when we are in your presence face to face. As Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we're going to experience the beauty of glorification one day, Lord. And we thank you for that. We rejoice in that. We praise you for that. And Lord, sometimes it's hard to even fathom what's next because of what we're going through on this earth and things that we're going through with trials and struggles. But God, we know you're good. We know you're faithful. We know you're loving, you're kind, you're providential, you're sovereign. And that's why we can come in here each week, Father, and just worship you and glorify you and lift up your name to make much of you, to exalt you. And that's why I love the privilege we have each week, God, to come before you with a time of petitions and intercession, to lift up individuals and ministries and um, our government, our nation, and and to the nations. I just thank you, Lord, that we don't take this for granted. We have an opportunity as a body to come together in unity, to intercede, to stand in the gap for others. And we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to do so. God, we thank you so much for the ministries of our church. We thank you for our women's ministry. We thank you for the women that are leading out in this way with a couple Bible studies on Wednesday nights and other women that I know meet throughout the week for coffee and they get together in different places with their children. God, we just pray you continue to bless each and every one of them as they gather to cultivate these relationships, to draw them closer to you and to each other. We pray you continue to give these women vision and strategies on how to gather and to impact our communities and just to be together, just to fellowship and encourage one another in you. Lord, we thank you for the ministries that are part of our church here within our faith family. And Lord, we thank you so much for Fisher's Farm. We thank you for Jeff and Jennifer Hand and leading out in this ministry here in Montgomery. We thank you for the men within the program that are being discipled and drawn to you, Lord that they daily, God, get in your word and they um, study and they interact and work. And we just pray, God, that you bless this ministry. We pray you give them vision and strategy and provision. I know right now, Lord, they're growing and there's a house next door to their ministry there on the land. We pray, God, that you would provide whatever is needed for them to grow and expand and to be able to bless men in this way to stay in that home. We pray your provision over that. Just continue, God, to draw them to yourself. And bless every aspect of this many. Bless these men um, as they seek you, to know you, and in the next steps that you have for each of them, Father. We thank you and praise you for them, that we can encourage them and for them to be a part of this faith family. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity, as we said earlier, with Awaken, that we can bless and pray for our extended family in Montgomery. We thank you for Pastor Buddy Bell and Landmark Church of Christ. Lord, I've known Buddy for many, many, many years. I've known many that of extended family in that church, and we pray your blessings upon him and Landmark. I know they're doing amazing ministry in their community and among the nations. 
We pray you continue to give them wisdom, the elders there, the leadership, wisdom and guidance on what you desire them to do. Continue to bless them, provide for them. And uh, we thank you for what they're doing over there off Taylor Road here in our community. And Lord, your word says clearly to pray for our leaders. God, that you are providential, you're sovereign in putting them in place. We trust you in this, God. So we pray for President Biden and our Congress and the Senate. Many things are happening even as we speak in Washington. And we just pray, God, your wisdom. May your kingdom come. May your will be done in the regards of the decisions that are made for our nation. I pray, God, your Holy Spirit would come and bring conviction upon each of them, Lord. We don't know where President Biden is with you and his intimacy with you, God, but we pray that he would draw um, and, and seek you and come to you and that you would reveal yourself, Lord, in a special way and bring him wisdom and discernment in those moments that I can only imagine the pressure and the stress of him being alone. God, show up in a powerful way. Bring conviction and discernment that he needs and the rest of our uh, leaders to be able to make decisions to bring you honor and glory. And, Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity to pray for the nations. And, Lord, we just lift up some pastors in the capital city of Madagascar. Um, as we have declared this morning, this context of John 17, of unity within the body of Christ. These pastors there in that city meet monthly to cultivate fellowship and unity among the churches. Again, for them, wisdom to give them strategies and vision and how to reach that nation and those in their communities. We pray, God, that you would bless them and may they experience a beautiful harvest as the gospel goes forth. Lord, thank you for being a good God, a God who provides. We pray for the blessing of the offering today, our tithes, and God, that you would just use these um, these finances, these resources to uh, cultivate and to advance your kingdom here at Gateway and the resources that we have, Lord, to facilitate your work here. And lastly, Lord, we thank you so much for Jeff. Jeff Moody, one of our elders here who serves faithfully, who um, shepherds us and leads us. We pray a blessing upon him this morning as he comes to bring the word. Uh, we pray you give him wisdom and energy and strength. Fill him afresh this morning, God, with your spirit as he comes to bring your word to us. God, we praise you. We love you. We declare your glory and your majesty this morning. For you are, as we have sung this morning, our living hope. Have your way this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, kids, first through fourth grade, you guys can head over to the gym building for kids' worship. Have a great time over there. There I am. Hi. Awesome. It's always that, that first few steps of the, of when you're a, you get up here and you haven't done it very often, you're like, okay, I made it. I did not face plant on the stairs. The microphone works. We're good. All right. So, uh, uh, for parents, if your kids are going to kids' worship, you can pick them up in the gym afterwards uh, after the service is over. So, uh, I wanted to introduce or invite you to an event that we're having today uh, here at the church today at four o'clock in the sanctuary in this room. It's in, well, it's really, for lack of a better phrase, and a forum for people to come and to talk about the faith and its interaction within the world, talk about things like why we believe what we believe, what are some doubts that people have, and how we can address them. It's an open forum, which means it's going to be kind of messy. It's designed to be that way, so we can work out some of these things. So it's the place, if you have doubts, if you have questions, if you have concerns, or know people that do, this is a good place to come today, 4 o'clock. It's going to be the first and third Sundays of, of 
the month, uh, every month for the next several months uh, through the end of the year. So uh, if you're interested, just come in. We'll be here at 4 o'clock today and then two weeks from now and then on following those first and third Sundays. So uh, I really like why questions. I've taught college English literature as a full and part-time teacher over the last 10 years. And this is the question that distinguishes an essay that makes a point. For my students, this is the difference between summary and analysis. And some of my college students are eye-rolling like, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> because they, they may have heard similar things from their professors. Um, but it's, uh, so I'm one of those people that continually asks the why questions. And it's important to do so because it's really easy to get caught up on the what questions of our lives. And that's understandable. What questions are practical? They focus on getting things done, on moving forward and acting in some kind of concrete way. What questions serve us very well? However, if we only think about the what questions, we will find that we take some of the stuff, substance behind the what for granted. Every what has a why. And in order to truly understand motivations, we have to understand and ask why. And we're turning to one of the essential principles of Christianity that makes it different from every other belief system. It's a foundational element of our faith. And if you're a Christian, you believe this. But have you ever stopped to ask, why? So the question is, why did Christ have to die? If you're following along in the New City Catechism, it has a few more words. It says, why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? But we're asking that question, why death? Why did he have to die? As Christians, we would say that Jesus is dying is a historical fact, and we can talk about the historicity of this event. We can talk about how it it fulfills Scripture and opens the door for salvation. We can then spring from this foundation into larger, and I would say we think more practical discussions and lose track of this essential piece of our faith. Many of the conversations inside and outside the church today focus on more pressing practical issues about Christianity, the church, and its practices. These questions are not wrong, and they need to be addressed. But we need to make sure we step back into these core questions at times. That's why we're doing the catechism, why we're getting back to the core of what we believe and why we believe it. Otherwise, we might find these foundations eroded. When we focus so much on the what, we can find ourselves in hazardous territory because the why of the death of Christ matters not only how we are saved, but how we continue to walk with God. So our core text for this morning uh, is Romans 3, 25 through 26. Let's stand as uh, we read God's word. And just so you know, like I've done this before, uh, this is not a responsive reading right, for folks because every now and then, even though we've done this every week since Grady's been here, he starts reading and I start right reading along with him and two words in I realize I'm the only one doing it. So just me reading today. So this is... Um, Uh, Romans 3, 25 through 26. It's talking about Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, what a remarkable truth that we get to discuss today. We get to talk about your salvation and why you had to die for us. And we get to talk about this concept of justice. 
and why it matters so much for what we believe. Open up our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So why did Jesus have to die? The answer is Jesus Christ had to die so that justice would be fulfilled and so that he could save those who follow him in faith. And there are four key principles that we must discuss that lead to this conclusion. If you've been here over the last several months, we've discussed them at length as we've reviewed the Ten Commandments and God's relationship with man. These principles are foundational to all of Christian belief. We can talk about these practice again, but these are those things we've got to understand at the core of what our belief is. So the first principle, God demands complete righteousness. God demands complete righteousness. This principle goes all the way back to creation and through the law given to the Israelites. This is why we've talked so often about terms like righteousness and wrath and dove deeply into the Ten Commandments. What did God say to Adam in the garden? You shall not eat of the tree. He commanded obedience to his will, which is another definition of righteousness. When we're faced with this truth, we all tend to play a math game with scales. We think that God has an evaluation of our goodness and our badness based on some standard. And that if we do some, if more good things than bad things then he will be pleased with us, or at least not angry with us, and will bless us or allow us into heaven. In some measure, we think we are good enough to earn our way. The problem that we see is in our calculation of good and bad. If I ask a why question here, I might discover that my evaluation of what is good and bad centers on those things that I can stomach. In those cases, where where I do this evaluation, I end up on top, and God is obligated To bless me. However, God's definition of good is so much more deeper and I would say more haunting than we think. In Matthew 22, 34 through 40, we see Jesus define what righteousness is. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, a great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. In some ways, this is nice. Jesus just summed up the moral and spiritual requirements of life. But this explanation is also devastating. Jesus Jesus puts an even finer point in the statement earlier in Matthew during the Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew 5, 48, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God created man in his image to honor him through obedience and this obedience is in complete perfection. When we say righteousness, what does that mean? It means a full and complete obedience to God with all of our being that reflects in care and concern for our neighbor. There is no good enough here. There is no, I did these well, but these things not so well. Oh, well. When we are confronted with this eternal truth, we have to realize that this next principle, the second principle, no one is truly righteous except God. So if righteousness is complete obedience... No one is truly righteous except God. 
Seeing God in this way and seeing his requirements on us in this way leads us to an entirely different evaluation of ourselves in terms of our goodness. This standard sounds harsh, unreachable, and we can rebel against it. Surely God is not this demanding on me. Or the phrase, I can't believe in a God that would require such a standard. If you're asking these questions, I hope you dig in a little bit and truly reflect on yourself and your motivations. Why, why am I responding in this way to this truth? Because the truth is, you are not as good as you think. And I am not as good as I think. Let's look at God's word prior to the verses of this week to understand just how bad we are. And during the time of the, Roman, of, of, of the book of Romans, when Paul was writing... Right? He and the other New Testament writers, div- writers divided the people into two main groups, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were the descendants of Abraham, those people with whom God covenanted and made his own called nation. He gave them the law and the sacrificial system and says throughout the Old Testament, these are my people. The Gentiles, for a very brief definition, is everyone else. These are, there are categories here, but it's important for Paul's point in Romans that we make the distinction between those people and know who has the law and who does not. And what amazes me about Romans is that these distinctions are clear, but Paul brings them to the same conclusion. Of the Gentiles, he says in Romans 1, 19-21, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, give thanks to him, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged, we got one more there, Brad? Nope, we don't. Okay, let me keep going. I may have given the wrong verse. Uh, they exchanged, they claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And by the way, we can't escape from this point because we don't worship little statues. Our idols can be ambition or money or family or relationships, anything that takes the place of God in our lives. Think about your life. What are those things that are primary? And let me ask a further question. How many of those things are more about the thing itself or what it does for you? What sort of assurances it gives you? What sort of insecurities it might fill up for you? You don't need a statue to have an idol. You need a mirror. Unless the Jews, those people who received revelation from God, think that they are better off. Look at what Paul says to them in Romans 2, 17 through 24. But if you call yourself a Jew... And rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you not steal? Do you steal? Do you, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This 
is a, human, a universal condemnation of the human race. What has been made known about God, either through what can be seen in nature or through his direct revelation, has been rejected by us. So much so that we see a summary of Paul's points in Romans 3, 11 through 18. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Kit Hughes says this of humanity, the entire human race suffers from a radical inner corruption. If we don't see it, I suggest that we're not looking hard enough at ourselves. One of my favorite books is C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy, which is a biography of his life up until he became a Christian. This is what he said when he encountered, this is what he said he encountered when he did true introspection. For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose, and there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. Hatreds. My name was Legion. Now, this, again, wakens up something you like, oh, man, that's really harsh. Dig into this and discover why. What does this statement make you think, and why does it do so? I've learned that I am the most defensive and hostile when I'm confronted with two things and they're related. First, I am most hostile when you confront me along the lines of my insecurities. And what might we call those things that I try to use to fill up my insecurities? Idols, specifically the one that says that I can earn my way or do enough right things to be blessed by God. If you, if you confront that, if you challenge that, I respond. And I'm wondering if you might be having that same response today. The other time that I'm most defensive, and you can ask Mandy about this, is when there's a possibility that I could be wrong, or more specifically, when I am wrong and I don't want to admit it. I am a living, breathing example of what Paul said, you then who teach others. Do you, not te- do you teach yourself? Are you not listening? We are all alike condemned under this standard, as Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is our position before God, and the sentence has been cast. Sin must be addressed, otherwise we would have no concept of justice. And this is the third principle. Justice calls for sin to be punished, and death is the only means that can truly atone for sin. The relationship between life and death exists all the way back to the beginning where God creates Adam and calls on him to obey. Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And think about that relationship for a moment here. What did God give? Life. What were God's requirements for this life? Obedience. And if this requirement is broken, then life has to be taken away 
for the circle to be completed. Otherwise, by what standard would justice whatsoever exist? We can no longer use terms like holiness, righteousness, and justice. Justice calls for wrongs to be made right. If the greatest wrong has been committed against the giving of life, then requiring death fits. We can sense just a bit of how wrong it feels when injustice has been done, right? Have you ever been wronged for some, by someone and that person was never caught, never punished? There's What makes you more angry? The fact that they wronged you or the fact that they were never caught and punished? This circle's not complete and that gap troubles us. Think about how often we see a wrong in the world that goes un- unpunished. There is something that digs deeply within us that needs for this justice to be done for someone to take the blame. Could you imagine a world where wrongdoing wasn't punished? This sounds wonderful at first, until we get past the initial layer and realize just what we are asking. If there is no core standard of justice, that sin requires death, then we would live in a world where everyone figures it out as they go. Some might argue we already live in that world. I think in some ways you're probably right. This makes sense to us, and this is why it's the core of so many of the post-apocalyptic stories, movies, and shows that have become so popular in the last little while. That core group, the group of heroes, right? What are they? They are the people trying to maintain some semblance of commonality or goodness or justice or right and wrong in a world surrounded by chaos. That chaotic world that exists outside the walls of the heroes, that is what we would face if sin was not punished. The punishment of sin is in, is in reality an affirmation of life. It says that life matters so much that to step against it, to move outside of obedience to the life giver, is to sake, forsake not only God, but life itself. One of the commentators I read this week put it this way. For God to not punish sin would be to have compromised with a lie that moral evil does not matter, and so to have violated his own truth and mocked men with an empty, lying reassurance, which, at their most human, they must have recognized as the squalid falsehood which it would have been. I don't want a God that doesn't hold a standard, and neither do you. I know myself well enough to understand what the type of mess I would put myself and others in if God did not establish a sense of right and wrong. So sin has to be punished, and death is the only way to atone for sin to make it right. Hebrews 11.22 tells us, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified by the blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the point of all the Old Testament scriptures that focus on the sacrificial system, and it is a great mercy to those people. And we discussed the Ten Commandments at great length over this year, and let's look at the passage right after the Ten Commandments where it is already known that sacrifices must be made. So we hit the Ten Commandments, and we are all alike condemned under that. In the next passage, we talk, God talks about sacrifices. Exodus 20, 22 through 24. An altar of earth you shall make for me. Oh, I may have given you the wrong. Yep, let me, I gave you the wrong scripture there. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and, a sacrifice, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. From the outset of the law, God set up the sacrificial system. 
If God did not set up the sacrificial system, then these people must die for their sin. Justice must be done. The sacrificial system, however, was a, was a picture of what was to come. And this is the great beauty of everything we've discussed so far as leading to Christ on the cross. Now, up until this point, this has been a pretty hard sermon to hear. And if I stopped it here, I would be doing you a great disservice because I'm only telling you half the story. But the second half of the story only works if we hear the first half of the story. And so we'll go back to those three principles that we've done so far. First, that God demands complete righteousness. Second, that no one is truly righteous except God. Third, justice calls for sin to be punished, and death is the only means that can truly atone for sin. So our fourth principle is where we land, and we can answer the question of why it was necessary for Christ to die. This is the situation of humanity and the place we all stand through Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the fourth principle. God, in his mercy, atones in our place, taking on our unrighteousness and giving us his. Here's Romans 3.24. If all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption of That is in Christ Jesus. We needed to go on this journey to reach the verses that I read to start this sermon. Without understanding God's demand for righteousness, we would not understand sin. Without understanding sin, we would not understand the need for punishment. Without understanding the need for punishment, we would not understand the need for a Savior. Without a need uh, for a Savior, we would not understand why it was necessary that Jesus, the Redeemer, had to die. So let's look at what this means for us. We are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How did this happen? Jesus died in our place. Back to our main passage, Romans 3, 25 through 26. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As we discussed, God could not continue to be the holy and righteous God, so sin had to be atoned for. Blood had to be shed. The curse of sin and death had to be borne by someone. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were the picture of this to come. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus? John one twenty nine. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And what was a lamb? A lamb was sacrificed to atone for our sin. However, as Grady has mentioned over the last couple of weeks, as he's talked about Jesus both being fully God and fully man, a sacrificial lamb that does not have the power of reason and thus the mental power to disobey in the same way can only be a sign of what was to come. See how the crucifixion satisfies the demand, of Jesus, uh, demand for justice. The sentence has been cast. We have been condemned. Yet Jesus took on our condemnation to bring us back to God. Justice is satisfied because human blood was spilled for human sin. But we see mercy and grace because God shed his blood for ours. He took our place. This is what the word propitiation means. He took our sin on him and gave us his righteousness. This is the cornerstone of Christian belief. And it fulfills all of the Old Testament prophets. Remember Isaiah 53, 
436, written hundreds of years before Jesus came. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. After the resurrection and the founding of the church, and as the message spread to the world, Paul and Peter and others wrote to the believers to encourage them. And what was the substance of their encouragement? Listen to, this is 2 Corinthians five seventeen through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry or the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ was made sin to bear the full penalty and weight of God's justice so that we might be reconciled to God. I can think of no greater way for God to affirm the dignity of life than to uphold the punishment for disobedience and thus uphold justice by taking on the penalty himself. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3.15, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's mind-blowing, and this is the difference between Christianity and every other belief system. uh, There is some measure of something you must do in Christianity. I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. In every other belief system, there's something that you're, you have to do, right? There's some sort of action you have to take. In Christianity, it is all about what Jesus has done for us. So, what do we do with this? I want to go back to, back to the passage immediately preceding our verses for today. It explains what we need to do. Romans 3, 20-24. Therefore... For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's it. Believe. Belief is not something you can mentally ascribe to, however. It's not a set of propositions that you think it might be true or that you can do half-heartedly. Belief means that it shapes every fiber of your being. If I believe in God and I believe this is true, then this righteousness from Christ has been given to me through faith. It is the thing that I center my entire life on. Belief in this way means turning away from our sin and turning toward God. If you haven't done this, and if your heart is awakened to this need, simply pray and say, yes, I believe. 
For those of us who are Christians, for some of us for years and years, the answer is still the same. And we will find it tremendously fulfilling to return to this same core belief every day. I was recently hanging out with some of our young adults recently, and I mentioned to them that I've been a Christian now for over 25 years, to which they replied that my belief is older than many of them. Thanks for that. However, I need this gospel truth today as much as any other day. Why? Because in my continued battle with sin, until the day that God completes my journey to be more like him, my flesh will continue to try to put me at the center of my own attention. I can quickly turn what I should be doing for the glory of God into an attempt to build up myself. If I don't find my security in God and in this gospel truth, I will attempt to secure myself in any other means. You know how you can spot it, by the way? Especially for people like me who tend toward a, a show of outward righteousness. Look at our boasting. Paul tells the people of Rome immediately after explaining this gospel truth in Romans 3.27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. But what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. This truth is the same for me today as it was when I was 13 years old on a spring break youth ministry trip. If my faith is completely based on everything Christ has done, what will I boast in? Him and his work. If it's based on me, what will I boast in? Me and my work. You can also spot it in the way that we act toward others. Philippians 2, 1 through 10. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Had this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. To the glory of God the Father. Do you count others more significant than yourself? I know I don't a lot of the time. And any time that I, have, that I do not have this default position toward others, I have moved away from the truth of the gospel. Anytime that I operate not out of love, but out of judgment, I've forgotten my core, and I've forgotten this truth. I'm boasting of my own achievements by condemning others. That's not the gospel. And by the way, that doesn't mean that we don't have to have hard conversations that, that are difficult things for people to hear. It means that the motivation for what we do and say reflects the same motivation that drove Christ to the cross. Don't fall into the trap that if it looks good on the outside, it's good on the inside. That's not true, because we're all very capable, me being the primary person, of dressing everything up so well and having the inside be corrupt. Or as Jesus said of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, you were like whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside and on the inside, full of dead man's bones. What is your motivation? What is your core? What is your why? 
Is it Christ on the cross? Or is it some way where you are trying to achieve your own form of righteousness? Some way where you're trying to fill up the insecurity that, you, that is there because you're a sinner. That's what? So am I. But we can believe that Jesus took our place and bore our punishment. In the same way, maybe you're not judgmental, except to, every, to everybody but yourself. Perhaps you're feeling tired, exhausted, just worn out. This world has many, many pulls, and so often it can seem like God doesn't care. Remember that God cares, even in the midst of a global pandemic, of job changes and the loss of family members, and all of the different ways that we can get pulled in different directions. And it just, it feels like this world goes on and God doesn't care. But remember that you are significant enough for God to die for you. And in grace upon grace, Jesus rising from the dead gives us the hope that this life is not all there is. Our destination is set for eternity. But we can move away from this truth and easily forget and get caught up in the cares and concerns of this world and its griefs and struggles. So if your faith has grown cold, go back to this truth. Don't try to will yourself up to get where you used to be. That's the path of boastfulness. Go back to God. Go back to the gospel. Go back to these truths that we've discussed today. Go back to the scriptures and say, I believe. Receive his grace. Receive the love that he showed you that day. Sit in wonder at his glory that demands justice and at the same time in love fulfills it in himself that we might be called his people. I was at a funeral on Monday. A 45-year-old teacher, wife, mother of two. It's heartbreaking. And during that funeral, though, we sang a song of hope. It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. We know that verse. But what's the core of that? Why can we believe that? It's in the next one. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. I have a blessed assurance because Christ regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. This is the truth that can get me up in the morning and lead me to rest each night. The king of the universe cast his sentence of death and took it on himself that I might live. Why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Here's the answer from the New City Catechism. Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. By his substitutionary atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. God, in his infinite righteousness, justice, and love, made a way to both uphold his holiness and the moral foundation of this world and at the same time to save us. And what else should we do except worship him for who he is and what he has done out of hearts that believe in faith? Let's pray. Father, it is amazing when we stop and reflect just for a moment 
on what you've done for us. Forgive us, Lord, when we get so active in the doing of our days that we forget the why. Forgive us for forgetting why we believe what we believe and why you had to come and die. Forgive us for taking it for granted because it is truly the foundation of our faith and what we believe. Without this truth, we have nothing. We are sinners condemned to die and to face eternal judgment. But because you poured out your love, your wrath on on Christ, we receive your love. You can pour out your love on us and we can walk in your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for that. Remind our hearts of that now. Remind our hearts of it later today. Remind our hearts of it tonight and tomorrow morning. Tomorrow when we go through the day, the days of the week, when we're tired, when we're energetic, whatever, when we face whatever this world has to offer, let this blessed assurance control that you have regarded my helpless estate and have shed your own blood for my soul. In Jesus' name, amen. as we get ready to sing.
Praise 
close with this encouragement from the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Go in peace. Amen. Thank uh-huh. you.